All right. So we're going to start a new series, three weeks. We're going to be talking about what I call the unbroken line. You may have heard me refer to that before. This is something that is really, really important to me and uh, in my ministry, something that has been prominent at the forefront. We actually had a, when we pastored in Kentucky, we had a radio program that aired every week. It was called The Unbroken Line. And, and the tag on that was taking the eternal truth to a new generation. So what, what's The Unbroken Line about? We're going we're gonna to hear that this morning. We're, we're going to take the next three weeks and we're going to talk about this. How many of you know it's important to reach the next generation? I believe Return Church has a bright future. I believe that. I believe if we build with the principles of the word of God that we will reach the next generation and that the, the ministry of this house will be perpetuated for generations to come. As long as the Lord tarries, that this church can be effective at reaching people. Amen? I believe that we're, we're called to raise up a generation of ministers, that we're going to impart into young people. How many of you realize that Jesus went after young people? They, they continued to minister for over half a century after his death, burial, and resurrection. You realize that? The men that Jesus selected continued to minister for over half a century after his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. He picked young people, and they carried his ministry for another generation. You think about that. So let, let's look at the 16th Psalm, and we're going to talk about the, un, the unbroken line this morning. Psalm 16 says, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee. But to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. That third verse, I like the way the New Living Translation reads. It says, The godly people in the land are my true heroes. I take pleasure in them. I love that. My heroes are not athletes or movie stars or politicians or obscure preachers that I don't have relationships with. I'm related naturally by family to a lot of my heroes. My heroes are the men and women of God that I have seen faithfully for decades serve the Lord. Some of them don't pastor large churches, but they've just been faithful for a generation to preach the gospel and make disciples. Those are my heroes. The godly people in the land are my true heroes. I take pleasure in them. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up the, their names into my lips. The Lord is my portion, it is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. And verse 6, it says, The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a goodly heritage. Man, think about your family lineage. Heard about the guy in Kentucky who looked up his family tree and it was a straight line. 
All right. The lines are fallen to me in pleasant places, verse 6 says. Yes, I have a goodly heritage. I have a goodly or a godly heritage. I am blessed. I stand here today because my fathers, my mother, my family were men and women of God. On my dad's side, they were Baptist. And on my mom's side, they were Pentecostal. My grandpa, Roger Hayes and Mary Hayes, they were faithful Baptist folk. When I was called into ministry, my grandma Mary sent me a subscription to Billy Graham's magazine. It was called Decision. And I got that until she passed. She faithfully paid that subscription every year until she passed away. She taught Sunday school the Sunday before she passed. She was a faithful woman of God. Go back on my mother's side, the Pentecostal side. Almost my entire family is involved in ministry in some capacity, serving in in the local church, pastoring, evangelists. We go down a long long, uh, line of men and women who have served the Lord, and not all of them vocational ministers. My dad was a truck driver, but he was a man of God, a man of integrity, quiet but faithful. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. I have a goodly heritage. I'm blessed because of that. All of my memories of childhood, the majority, the greater majority of them revolve around the church. Outreaches. I remember going to Alizon Apache Courts, downtown San Antonio, government-subsidized housing as a seven, eight, nine-year-old child with our church to do outreach on the streets. I remember when my uncle, pastored in San Antonio, Texas, bought an X-rated movie theater, tore out the partition walls, and turned it into a sanctuary. I remember going on Sunday nights for the leadership meetings with my parents and me and my friends would take our Star Wars or G.I. Joe figures up into the the projector room while our parents were doing church business and we would play up in those projector rooms. I could go through memory after memory after memory of those experiences. I was going through pictures even this morning just Recollecting, and mainly with, with my family, with my, my boys, my daughter, looking back at pictures of our travels. My kids are blessed, and they don't even know it. Somebody said to a pastor friend of mine, or no, I'm sorry, a pastor friend of mine said one time, it, it's hard to be a, a preacher's kid. And I said, actually, you know, it's, it's, it's really a blessing. It, it's hard to be a drug dealer's kid. It's hard when, you're, you're, when your mom or daddy are gangbangers. That's, that's hard. It's hard when you grow up in the home of an alcoholic. That's hard. It's a blessing to grow up in a godly heritage. So what, what is the unbroken line? Psalm 145, verse 4, it says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. That's the unbroken line. Psalm 112, verse 2, it says, His descendants will be mighty on the earth, and the generation of the upright will be blessed. One uh, translation said, his seed shall be mighty and his generations shall be blessed. Say this with me, uh, repeat after me. My my seed shall be mighty mighty. 
and my generations shall be blessed. Amen. You need to declare that. You need to claim that promise. Amen. You need to stand on the word of God. Even if your kids are acting like hellions, stand on the promises of God and believe for your children. Daniel chapter 4 verse 3 says, How great are your signs, how mighty are his, his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. That's the unbroken line. In Genesis chapter 49, uh, uh, what, what happens here is Jacob prophesying over his children and his grandchildren. The entire pastor, pa- passage in, in Genesis chapter 4 is him leaning on the top of his staff, prophesying over his grandchildren. And look what the writer in Hebrews said, Hebrews 11 and 21. It says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of, his sons, each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. He blessed his generations. That is the unbroken line. And I want to encourage you to prophesy over your children. Prophesy over your grandchildren. I've been prophesying over my kids since they were newborns. I have been prophesying and declaring the word of the Lord over them. You know, there's a story that that I've been hearing my entire life. When when my mom and dad, they were in in, in Augusta, Georgia. At this point, they had my sisters who are 13 and 10 years older than I am. They started praying for a child. They wanted a son. But the doctors had told my mom she shouldn't have any more kids. My mom had two miscarriages somewhere in the mix of those two girls. And the doctors, after that second miscarriage, they said, if you try to have another child, it could, it could kill you, and it's not recommended. But they began to pray. And my pastor's wife came to my mom, not knowing even that they were praying, and she said, Kay, you're pregnant and you're gonna have a son. And then they dedicated me a few months later in that church. And the pastor's wife, they spoke to my parents and said, there's a call on this young man's life. I grew up my entire life hearing that story. What's the point? What you're speaking over your children matters. I've heard that, that I wasn't supposed to be here and that there's a purpose and a plan and a call in my life. I've heard that my entire life. What you speak over your children matters. Jacob prophesied over his grandchildren. This is a picture of the unbroken line. Another one is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Those of you that know me well know that this is one of my, one of my verses. 2 Tim 2.2. 2. Everybody say it. 2 Tim 2.2. 2. 2. The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses... Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In that one verse, there's four generations. There's Paul, who teaches Timothy, and he tells Timothy to find faithful men and teach them so that they could turn around and teach others. Four generations of discipleship. That is the unbroken line. I want to I look at a couple of examples, and, and there are a lot of examples in the Old Testament where parenting didn't go well. Probably one of the worst examples is Eli, who was a priest. 
Eli failed his generations. Eli failed his sons. And because of that, the glory of God departed from his household. Ichabod, the word Ichabod, the glory of God has departed, was written over his household because he failed to raise his sons to be godly men. In 1 Samuel, I remember the first time that I read this, I thought Eli's wife's name was Belial. Because in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, it says, the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. So I thought Eli's wife was Belial. Come to find out that's not his wife's name. That name literally means sons of the devil. And it's generally used throughout the Old Testament with sexually perverse and immoral people. That's usually when that, is, that, that, that term is used, the sons of Belial. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 actually uses it. Beginning in verse 14, it says this, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship have righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or with the devil? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So when, when God's saying that, the, that Eli's sons are the sons of Belial, that is not a good thing. They knew not the Lord. For Samuel chapter 2, verse 17, it says this. It says, Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. What does all that mean? I want to, I'm going to explain that in just a minute. They abhorred the offering of the Lord. And so their sin was great. Now you have to understand that, that and, and these guys' names, they're, they're, this is Hophni and Phinehas, they are the sons of Eli. You have to understand that they were in line to become priests. In the Levitical priesthood, if your father was a priest, you were going to be a priest. And so they would train their children from a young age to be priests. Eli evidently missed some things in this training. Look at this in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22. It says, Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons did unto all of Israel, how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he says unto them, Why do you such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, and this is a weak rebuke. This is a weak rebuke. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear you make the Lord's people to transgress. Why, why do I say this is a weak rebuke? These, these young men are, are being trained for the priesthood. And in this passage that we just read, it says that they were, they were laying with the women who came to the temple. They were literally bringing these women into sexual affairs. Think about this. Not only this, they were also stealing the offering of the Lord for themselves. They were stealing what was rightly God's and keeping it for themselves. And so he gives this weak rebuke. If that were my sons, daddy would have taken his belt off. True story. They would have sat in the pew and never stood on the platform again until their lives were in order. But he allowed this sin to continue. It's a weak rebuke. Name my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. 
If one man sins against another, the, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, look at this, notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. They didn't listen to the warning from their father. And because of this, God would remove the anointing off of the house of Eli. And he would use this prophet Samuel to actually speak a prophetic word to Eli about the dysfunction, about the ruin of his household. In, in chapter 3, verse 11, so where we begin to read, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that hears shall tingle. And in that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth. Because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. If you are a parent, I want you to understand this. We have a responsibility to restrain our children. It is not cute to entertain sexual perversion and sexual depravity that is so prevalent in our culture today. Parents, we have to make a bold stand and teach our children that sexual sin will destroy their soul. Only purity, only doing it God's way is honorable. Only doing it God's way leads to life. And everything else is perversion. Sex between a man and a woman who are married and have a covenant with God, healthy. Everything outside of that, unhealthy, deviant, and perverse. And we need to hear that. Not just homosexuality, but fornication and adultery. And it will destroy your soul if you participate in any of it. And we need to teach our children that there is a difference between light and darkness. We need to stand for truth and we need to disciple. And there is a responsibility to train our children in the ways of the Lord that's upon us. We need to understand that. We need to restrain. He watched his sons grow vile. And he restrained them not. I said this last Sunday, but those children are not my children. Noah, Nathan, Jensen, and Bethan are not mine. I'm a steward. They belong to the Lord. One day I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to give, a, give an account for what I did with my boys. That's why they're here every single Sunday unless they're at youth camp. They're going to be in church. They, they, they all have dreams. They're going to be NBA stars. And if they can do that Monday through Saturday, great. But if they need Sunday to do it, I'm sorry. My kids won't get involved in sports on Sunday. They won't. They won't get involved in clubs that take them out of church on Sunday. It's not going to happen. Why? Because I'm training my kids. That's all they've ever known. They don't know any difference. That's all they've ever known. And they love coming to church. They do. They love the things of God. I'm going to tell you more about that in just a minute. They absolutely love it. My kids have been in church almost every single Sunday of their life. It may be one, two, three at the max 
that they've, any of our kids have ever missed church for sickness or any other reason for their entire lives. I've got a 16-year-old. He may have missed church twice in his life. It's the way it's always going to be in the Hayes house. And I'm teaching them to raise their kids the same way. You know what I'm teaching my, my children? I'm teaching my boys they do not kiss a woman until they've stood at an altar and made a covenant with her. You may think that's strange, and in our culture it is. But I'm teaching them they don't put their hands on a woman that, that doesn't belong to them. That's a, that's a daughter of the king, and they don't put their hands on her until they've made a covenant with her and the king. That's what I'm teaching them. Will they mess up? Lord, I hope not. But if they do, I'm going to love them through it. I'm going to show them grace, and I'm going to keep training them. we got to teach our kids to be different. I don't want to lose my sons. Absalom, another example, he lost his sons. Absalom, in his lifetime, this is uh, 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 18, had taken up and, 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 and set up an altar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and to this day it is called Absalom's monument. Someone once said, if we fail to win, if we win the world and we fail to win our own kids, we leave the church without a heritage. This is what happened with Absalom. See, Absalom actually had sons. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 27, it says, To Absalom were born three sons, one daughter whose name was Tamar, and she was a beautiful, uh, a woman of a beautiful appearance. See, he had three sons. Why did he have to build a pillar so that people would remember him? Because he'd failed to, to teach his children so that they would carry on the legacy. By the way, you know what I want my legacy to be? I, I don't know who some famous preacher said this. He said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's what I hope happens with my life. The longer I go in this thing, the, the more I realize how unimportant I am. But I want the legacy to be perpetuated, not the legacy of Chad Hayes, but the leg legacy of King Jesus to be perpetuated through my generations. And my legacy is not going to be because I built a big ministry, because I built some media mogul ministry, or because I built big buildings, or because I did this or that or the other. I want it because I raised sons to maturity, my own natural sons and spiritual sons that I have discipled to do ministry. That's what I want to be my legacy, that there will be people to continue when I'm gone preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Absalom had to build a monument so that he would be remembered because he didn't have sons to carry on the legacy. Here's a couple statistics. Did you know this? 24.7 million children are growing up in America today fatherless. 24.7 million children in America today growing up fatherless, 33%. 33% of children growing up in America are growing up without a father figure in their life. 72% of children today are born out of wedlock. If you really want to know what sexual perversion and all these lies of sexual identity that are being forced on our culture today are about, that's it. Satan wants to destroy two things, the church and the family. Amen? We've got to stand for both. 
And we got to stand for the nuclear family. We got to stand for sexual purity, the way that it is in the Bible. Not the way that men have perverted it and twisted it to be. And it's okay to shack up and it's okay to you know, experiment. It's okay to, to rent it before you buy it. Those are lies from the pit of hell. We need to stand up for the family. We need to stand up for what's right. For the sake of our children, we need to do what's right. Amen? We need to. Think about that. 72% of children today born out of wedlock. That's the problem. So I've given you the bad examples. I've talked to you about Eli. I've, I, I've given you the statistics. I've talked to you about Absalom. Now here's the redemption. Here's the redemption. Do you know what the last promise of the Old Testament is? The last promise of the Old Testament. It's found in Malachi chapter 4. Malachi, y'all know who he is? He's the Italian prophet. You guys know why Italians don't like Jehovah's Witnesses? It's because they don't like any witnesses. <laughs> All right. The only thing worse than dad jokes are preacher jokes. I know. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. At least I come and strike the earth with a curse. The last, this, this is the last prophetic word spoken until the coming of Jesus. The last word of the old covenant curse. That curse hissed for 400 years till the coming of the Lord, the fulfillment of this prophecy. I'm going to send Elijah. Jesus was that coming of Elijah. And it says he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. You know what, church? This needs to be at the heart of what we do in ministry, to see the hearts of the fathers turn to the children and the hearts of the children turn to the fathers. Eli did his children wrong. He gave a soft rebuke when he should have restrained them. So we need to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Hophni and Phinehas rebelled against their father. When they did hear those words, they hearkened not to the voice of their father. That's why we need someone who can turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers. This is generational continuity. That's why I said that the church has to have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob present. We need the older generation and the younger generation and everybody in between coming together to make a healthy church. Our hearts need to turn to the young people, and the, the, the hearts of the young people need to turn to the hearts of the older folks. Amen? Amen? May God give us a heart for our children. Over the next, now two weeks, the next two weeks to come, I'm going to be talking about this. Our heart as a church for the generation that's coming behind us. We've got to have a heart for them. But this is the last promise of the Old Testament, that God would turn the hearts of the fathers 
to the hearts of the sons. Now look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. It says, Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to who? To you and to your children and to all that are far off, generations to come, as many as the Lord our God will call. This is the unbroken line from generation to generation. In parenting, there are three stages. In disciple-making, there are three stages. Disciple-making is basically parenting. It's raising the babes in Christ to maturity. So in parenting, there are three stages. There are three stages to discipleship. Number one is parenting. Parenting. This is the season when it's most important to bring the restraint They call it the formative years for a reason. You know, when you build a a slab, a concrete foundation, you you put up form boards, you pour that concrete in there, you only have a certain amount of time to work that concrete and and get it to take the right shape before it cures. Same thing with our our children. They are the formative years because the, the principles that we teach them during those years are principles that are hard to get away. The only way those principles will be changed is with a jackhammer. That's why it's important that we get our kids to church. That's why we set, it's important that we set an example of, of honoring the Lord and putting the things of God first in our life. Our kids need to see that example because we are marking them. Your behavior during the formative years is ultimately what's going to shape your child's character. And so we need to live our lives before the Lord in a way that honors him so that they will see that and they will follow our example. Somebody, they heard that scripture quoted, follow me as I follow Christ, and they said, I don't want anybody following me. No, if you're called as a disciple of Jesus, you're called to that life, like it or not. You're called to lead a life worth following. Well, nobody's looking at me. Your children are looking at you. They're watching you. They're watching the example that you set. If you cuss out the, the, the lady at McDonald's who got your order wrong, they're going to grow up to cuss out people too. The things that we model speak the loudest in our children's life. And you know what? I said this last week. I mess up. You'll mess up. But that's all right. They need, our, our kids need to see us mess up. You know what's more important is they, they, they see us recover. They see the comeback. They see our apologies. They see us repent. They see us put things right when we've wronged people. Our children need to see that because they need to learn to do that. They're going to mess up, and they need to see an example of how to recover. Amen? So the first stage in life of a child is, is it, our relationship with our children is parenting. Second is pace setting. Pace setting. My oldest is getting into that season where it's not so much about parenting for me as it is pace setting. I'm helping him to find his cadence. I'm helping him to find his step. 
I'm helping him to stand on his own and and navigate his own course in life, the the course that God's called him to, and how to walk that out. He's going to have to learn. I'm giving him room to make mistakes. God God showed me an analogy on on the construction site. My kids have grown up. Any construction project I've been involved in that they could come to with me, I've brought them with me. My kids can lay tile. My kids can float walls. My kids can paint. But on the, the job site with my kids, Scott showed me this. Give, he said, give them enough room to cut the board wrong. So they need room to make mistakes. But don't give them enough room to cut their fingers off. <laughs> so when they're using my saw, I'm, I'm, I'm over them. I want them to learn how to measure and, and mark the board and cut it just precisely right. But if they mess it up, you know, the best place to start is, well, now that lumber is about $100 a two-by-four, maybe not so much. Used to be two-by-fours were cheap, and that was a good place for them to make some mistakes because you got a pile of them there, and you could use their mistakes where you need shorter lumber, right? That's, that's true in life. There are places where you need to allow your children to make some mistakes, and then there are places where you don't want your kids making mistakes because it will be detrimental to them. There's some things you don't want to expose your children to because there's no comeback from it. Amen. You can't glue fingers back on, well, unless you're Pastor Bill. <laughs> the, the, the marvels of modern medicine, right? It's hard, I should say, to glue fingers back on. So number, number one is parenting. Number two is pace setting. Number three is partnership. Partnership. I'm starting to to talk about partnership with my children. Let's start a business together. Or come and help me in ministry. See, there there were times when they were unprofitable. I couldn't make money with them. Because it was all learning experience. There were times when they they weren't mature enough yet to do ministry. But these children are coming into their own. Amen. I was blown away the first time that David Cook called me and said, hey, would you come and preach at my church? That's a spiritual father. But you know what's happened over the last uh, 10 years or so? I've come into partnership with a spiritual father. Right? So this is the picture that God, I, I believe, in seasons of life wants us to move through. That we're, number one, we're parenting our kids. Number two, we are pace setting with our kids. And then number three, we are partnering with our kids. So it's, it's all the church's fault, right? It's the church's fault that your kids don't want to come. It's the church's fault that your kids have a bad taste for Christianity. It's, a, it's, a bad, it, it's the church's fault. I hear, I hear this all the time. I saw, I read a book, it's called, I think it's called Think Orange. It's about kid, children and youth ministry. Think Orange. And in that, I found this, this analogy. In the book, they have a, a picture drawn with 40 dots on it. It's a graph with 40 dots. And the point of that picture is, if you bring your kids to church on a pretty regular basis, on average, the church has about 40 hours to influence your children. Then on the next page, there's another graph. 
and it's almost completely orange with dots. 3,000 dots. And the point of this picture is, this is how many chances you have an opportunity to influence your children. You know what the most common factor in my 24 years of ministry, I, I remember one time I was, I was, this was 22 years ago probably, I was helping out with our youth group. And I had this kid just act out in total rebellion. And I went to the youth pastor and I said, I don't know how to deal with this situation. He sat me down, he talked me through it. One of the things he said in that conversation, he says, you have to, don't, don't get upset with the kids. One of the things you have to remember, it's just never the kids, it's the parents. Love these kids and try to build them to health. We went out of that meeting, got back to the kids. That parent of that child showed up screaming at us, tore us up one side and down the other. And I got a vivid picture of the problem. And I'm not trying to blame everything on parents. I'm not at all. But one of the, the common factors that I've seen, when, when kids don't want to come to church, the majority of the time that I've seen that, it's parents bad-mouthing church. Amen. That is the problem. We've got to be careful. Speak well of the church. We have 40 chances to influence your child. You have 3,000. If we mess it up once out of those 40 times, you should be able to recover with 3,000 opportunities. You should be able to disciple your child and bring him back to a place of health by the words of your mouth, by the example of your life. We've got to put the responsibility back square. This church is not responsible for raising my kids. This church has a partnership in raising my kids. But the responsibility, I am the steward. I'm the priest of my house. And ultimately, that responsibility lies squarely on these shoulders. So focus. This is about, for Return Church, this sermon series and what we're doing over the next couple of weeks. What, what matters to Return Church? Let's talk about focus. Here's what I have envisioned for our youth ministry, our student ministry, period. We have plans for kids' ministry. We're working through things there. We're working through things with our youth ministry. Also have vision for our 20-somethings, our college students. They, they need ministry here. But what, what's the point? Here's, here's a focus. When it comes to ministering to our, our, our kids, the next generation, you can go ahead and put the slide up. It says, we, we will creatively synchronize the home and the church to lay a sure foundation in the life of our children. Think about that statement. We will creatively synchronize the, the home and the church to lay a sure foundation in the life of our children. This is what we need to be about. When it, when it comes to ministering to our kids, we've, we've got to synchronize because it's going to take, yes, church ministry. It's going to take a youth group. It's going to take a kids ministry. It's going to take a college group, yes. We need those things. But more than that, the home and the church have to begin to work together in discipleship. We're, we're going to do something called catechism. How many of you have ever heard that? Now, how many of you raising your hands are Catholic? <laughs> That's not a Catholic term. 
It's used in the Catholic Church, but it's not a Catholic term. That, the word catechism actually comes from the Hebrew word in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, which says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart it. The word train there is to catechize. As a church, we need to catechize our kids. As, as a parent, we need to catechize our kids. How do we do that? I'm going I'm to go through this really quickly. I'm going to give you quickly four ways that you as a parent can equip your kids. There are four, four opportunities every single day that you have to pour into your kids. I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 through 7. And as we read through this, look for the four ways. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. In that passage right there, there are four opportunities, four times that we have to disciple our kids. Number one is morning time. He says, when you wake up. That's the morning time. I want to encourage you, start the day with prayer. Reading and memorizing God's word. Start the day that way. You know, every day when we, we're sending our, our kids to school this morning, this year, my wife every morning had a scripture ready, and we walked through that with our kids. We prayed with them before we left the house. And we were driving to church this morning. I said, we, we got to start that again. Just because it's summer, we can't let up. Tomorrow, and our kids, I know our kids are going to be tired coming back from camp. So I'm not going to wake them up too early. I'll let them sleep till 6.30. <laughs> Just kidding. But when they do get up, we're going to have some scriptures ready for them to memorize. And we're going to pray with them. Morning time is an opportunity for you to influence your children. Number two, travel time. He says, when you walk by the way. Travel time is a great time to dialogue and interact with your kids in ways that will help them apply what they are learning about Jesus and their walk with him. I've had the privilege every morning this last school year of driving my kids to school. Rachel would pick them up every afternoon driving them to basketball games. There's an opportunity. Their, their favorite mode on the drive to school was sleep mode. <laughs> Nevertheless, I poked and prodded. I've learned to turn my radio. I love to listen to radio. I love talk radio. I love sports radio. I love to listen to the radio. I love to listen to music. But when the kids are in the car, I've learned to turn it off and talk. They'll open up. You find out what's important. I had an opportunity to drive one of my sons home this week, last week I think it was. We, we were driving home, and my child opened up and revealed to me that God was working in his heart. He opened up about some decisions, changes in decisions about the future of his life, and I could tell God is dealing with this young man. Drive time. You can shape their worldview driving down the highway. They'll talk about problems they're facing at school, talk to, ask them questions about what their, their hobbies, their sports, their dance, their music, whatever they're into at school. Ask them questions, get them talking. You need to have a relationship. 
It's time to stop having, being, what we try to do is to be cool with our kids. Right? Let's be cool with our kids and, and, you know, we'll buy beer for their party. And we're deceiving ourselves. God hadn't called you to be cool with the kids. But I want to tell you this, one of the greatest relationships in life can be the relationship that you have with your kids. You're not called to be their best, their BFF and their cool guy. But it can be one of the most rewarding and intimate relationships. If we build relationship with our children, do it during drive time. Number three, dinner time. He says, when you sit in your house, when you sit at your table, lead conversations in a way that will help them to establish values that are consistent with the concepts that they're being taught. So you're helping them memorize scripture. They're getting lessons in Sunday school. Dinner time is where you can help to shape their values. It's hard. We, we've been in move mode. Living in a cabin, now we're living in a halfway remodeled house. Living out of boxes still, trying to unpack, trying to hang pictures, trying to put doors in and fix plumbing leaks. It's challenging. Work schedule where at least two nights a week, I'm here late at the church. It's hard to sit down for dinner, but it's important. If you can't set them at the dinner table, take them out to a restaurant and sit around with them and eat and talk to them, engage them. Have them put the phone down. Put your phone down and engage with your kids. Amen. Engage with your kids. Psalm 128. Psalm 128 says, and I won't go through the whole thing, but he says basically, I'll, I'll sum it up. He says that your children will, will be like olive trees around your table. Around your table, the dinner table. It takes 13 years before an olive tree will, will bear fruit. They have to be nurtured, they have to be tended to the soil, the water, all the conditions, the environment. They're very delicate in those 13 years, very tender for 13 years before they will ever bear fruit. But you know that there are olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane bearing fruit today that they were there when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and they're still bearing fruit. There's a, there's a picture if you'll tend to your kids during those formative years, they will bear fruit for ages to come. If you'll invest in your children, your grandchildren, and their children will be blessed. Your children will be like olive plants around your table, in part, and teach biblical values, a worldview at your dinner table. Number four, and we're going to wrap up with this, number four is bedtime. Bedtime. It says, when you lie down, I want to encourage you to end your day with your kids with intimate prayer. This, this is an opportunity for you, you to learn your child's heart. When your children are tired, they will say all kinds of things that they normally won't say. They will open up about things as they're about to drift off to sleep. They'll expose their heart to you at bedtime. Sometimes it might be in fears. But you'll, feel, you'll, you'll hear, and as they express those fears, you'll hear what's really gripped their heart. You'll get to know your children. Pray with them. Comfort them. Encourage them as you send them off to bed. Think about how many children in America go to bed in turmoil. Fluff their pillow. Pull the blanket up. Pull in the teddy. Give them a hug. Pray with them. Encourage them. Amen. And send them to sleep. 
comfort, security. Settle them. Four times that we have an opportunity to influence our kid, our kids. Bedtime, travel time, dinner time, bedtime. Think about it. How many opportunities are we going to waste? And then we'll wonder why they turn out a certain way. Or we'll blame shift. It's the church's fault. It's their fault. It's my dad's fault. It's it's my ex-wife's fault. No. If my kids don't grow up to serve Jesus, it's nobody's fault but mine. I'm going to make sure that I have an unbroken line. Let's, Let's stand together. I want to tell you about something. We're we're making some changes. There's a reason our kids are coming to the sanctuary on Sunday morning. Number one, our our, our youth ministry has has come back on Wednesday nights. Shut down and COVID and all this kind of stuff. We've got a strong Wednesday night going. I think it's important that our kids understand what it is to be a part of the church. My, My kids have always been able to sit in church. Bev, Bev Futter, where are you at? She put up a post, a post on Facebook, I think it was spot on, about taking your kids to church. Spot on this morning. It's important that we take our kids to church. And it's important that they learn to be a part of the church. They are, they are not some subset of our church. They are a, a vital part of this community. We're, we're going to begin to disciple our kids in a way that we, 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 you, you won't see it in most churches in America. If a kid is ready and mature to stand up on this pulpit at six years old and preach the gospel, I'll put him up here. If a kid is mature at 11 or 12 or 13 or 17 to play the drums, we'll put him up here. Not just my kids. I don't believe in pastor kids' privilege. I believe in pastor kid getting more responsibility because I'm going to put it on him. (laughs) We're going to put him in the sound booth. We're going to put him on cameras. We're going to get him greeting at the door. We're going to take him with with us to outreach. We're going to disciple our kids and stop treating them like they're not ready yet. And we're not going to turn them, I, I don't believe in putting thing, novices into things. We're, I'm not talking about anything like that. We're not going to put them in any situation where they can cut their fingers off. But we're going to begin to disciple. There, there's a shift coming to our youth ministry. Jessica and Shannon have served faithfully over, I don't know, the last couple years. I don't know exactly the time period. But they've done it faithfully. They have done a remarkable job. They have. Jessica and Shannon are moving out from our youth ministry. We're going to honor them. Two weeks from today, we're going to honor them. And two weeks from today, we're also going to pray over our new youth leadership. So we're, we're going to set in Joe and Amanda Connery for this next season to lead our youth. Darren and Sarah Baker, Baker are also leading in the middle school. We're going to pray over them next Sunday. Amen? I'm excited about this. I've been, this is not anything we've done in haste. I've been praying about this. This is really, a, really a, 
as far as me as a senior pastor, first big move. But I've, I've met with Joe many, many times. Before we were even talking about him going into this position, we, we just met for other reasons. God is growing Joe. God has prepared Joe. Joe doesn't have it all together yet. I don't either. We're going to keep working with him. He's, he's exhibited a great humility, a teachability, and a capability. He's already been there for, I don't know how, a couple of years at least, working with our kids. So it's going to be a natural fit. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it. And we're going to, we're going to change our youth ministry from being the celebrity entertainment model. Let's, let's all have fun. And they're going to keep having fun. They're going to do kickball. They love kickball. They love ping pong. All that's going to keep happening. But our focus is going to be about discipling kids to know what it is to walk with Jesus. So these are changes. I'm excited about these things. We're going to raise up a generation. We're, we're going to be sending these kids to plant churches 10 years from now, to go to Mission Field 10 years from now. Watch. Watch and see what happens. Amen? Praise God. I'm going to pray and we're going to dismiss. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your goodness to us. Father, I pray that you would birth in us a heart for a generation. Lord, we don't want to miss a generation. We don't want our kids to go off to college and get swept away by ideologies and philosophies. Lord, we want to lay a foundation in our children with, for a, a biblical world view. Help us. Help us, Lord God. Help us to reach young people throughout this community. Many of them are in broken homes, dysfunctional situations. Many of them don't have anybody at all that cares for them. Help us, Lord God. Father, I pray that you would stir in people and give a heart, raise up people in this church with a burden to go out and reach those young people and to build discipleship programs in our community. Lord, I just declare right now an unbroken line from generation to generation. Give us wisdom. Give us boldness. Let everything that we do be grounded and rooted in love. Give us strategies. Help us to see your plan and work that out in this church. Father, we thank you. We give you praise. We honor you. In the mighty name of Jesus. Father, we pray right now for our youth. We thank you for the seeds that have been sown into their hearts this weekend at camp. Father, I declare that they're going to bear fruit. There's been an effective work in their life this weekend. You've touched their hearts. You've gotten their attention. And Father, help us to steward that. Help us as parents to steward our kids. Help us as a church to steward the ministry to the next generation. Father, we thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There, you're going to hear more over the next couple weeks. You're going to hear a lot more about this kids' ministry, youth ministry. So stay tuned. God bless you. If you need prayer, if you need to be saved, if you're sick, if you need deliverance, come to this altar as everybody's leaving. We're here to pray for you. God bless you.